My name is Jeff Dill. I am the founder and CEO of Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey into becoming a firefighter? You know, it's uh, I've done so many things in my life. I I always had a full-time job. Uh, My wife and I got married in 1980, and we had daughters at 82 and 84. So I always had a full-time job, but I did so many different things. Uh, part-time wise. Uh, I worked uh, for a minor league ball club, the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, then I worked, uh, you know, in broadcasting and radio. Uh, I worked part-time on the PGA tour. So I, I've done so many things, you know, in my life. And then uh, we, my father-in-law and I, we built our house out in Gilbert's, Illinois in 1986 and moved in in 87. And a uh, neighbor next door, walked over you know a little while later and said hey you know we're we're looking for some volunteer firefighters for Rutland Dundee and I said well you know I'm, I'm busy I got my full-time job I'm doing the broadcasting I'll think about it well I, I finally got involved in around 1990 and uh, right then and there I knew that this is what I want to do so I went through EMT and paramedic class uh, officer I moved up to a lieutenant pretty quickly and then uh, in 1995 uh, Palatine Rural Fire Protection, which is now Inverness Fire Protection District, uh, was founded. And uh, so I, at the age of 33, I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And uh, I was fortunate to be one of the founding members. So, and uh, just moved on from there. I moved up pretty quickly uh, to a lieutenant, to captain, to battalion chief, to assistant chief. And then I I retired as, as a captain. I asked to go back to my tested position so I could do my work with Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance, FBHA, and I retired in 2015, and uh, currently I'm the Behavioral Health Administrator for Las Vegas Fire and Rescue. What inspired you to create your organization? Well, it was actually Hurricane Katrina. Uh, The year 2005, I was a battalion chief in Division I outside of Chicago, sent down numerous firefighters to help out our brothers and sisters. And when they came back, they were showing me pictures and uh, they were picking up bodies in the street and the animals that littered the landscape, the devastation. And so they went to their employee system program counselors, good people, but this is 2005 and we didn't talk about behavioral health at all in our in our, our past. So I thought, well, how, how can I give back to my brothers and sisters? I, I decided to go after my master's degree and I became a licensed counselor. And in 2009, I founded Counseling Services for Firefighters, and I was training counselors and chaplains across the U.S. Say, you want to work with us, you need to understand us. We're a little different. Not that it's wrong, but we're a little different. When in 2010, I started receiving emails and phone calls from all over the world saying, do you do anything about firefighter suicides? And so I contacted all the, you know, the major players, the United States Fire Administration, the NFBA, the NVFC, the IFF, the NFF, um, you know, no one kept any data on our brothers and sisters that took their lives. So in 2010, my wife of uh, 42 years now, uh, we founded FBHA and uh, we had three goals, educational workshops. We have eight now. Uh, We have a scholarship program. Uh, for families, uh, children wanting to go to school. And then our most endearing is called Those Left Behind. It's our annual weekend retreat for family survivors. And so we'll be coming up with our ninth one. It's always held in the third week of May. And families from all over the country gather together to, to bond because they have one thing in common. 
they lost a, a loved one to suicide that was either a fire, um, EMS, or dispatcher. And then on that Friday night, the third Friday of May, we hold a nationwide, what we call We Remember. And uh, with that, we go down to the local fire station. Uh, this year, we'll be in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And uh, I already have it arranged with the chief. And about 8.45, we go live on Facebook. So people across the country can watch us, across the world, actually. And uh, we, I, I do a little speech, and then we pan the families. They hold pictures of their loved ones and say their name. And then at 9 o'clock, uh, local time, uh, the rigs are uh, run their lights for one moment uh, to say we remember our fallen brothers and sisters. And we, and we have hundreds and hundreds of organizations across the U.S. and Canada that join us. So it's a, it's been one heck of a journey. There's no doubt about it. So I talked to uh, quite a few firefighters and a lot of them say they had to basically split their life of family life and firefighter life. And then it was just tough balancing both them. How important is it for firefighters to be more open with their mental health? It's absolutely imperative. Um, you know, when, when we look at the data, and I have validated 1,824 of these tragic events, and we estimate about a 65% reporting. And uh, I have personally spoken to about 1,790 chief officers to validate all the data or family members. And we know that unknown is the number one known reason for my brothers and sisters taking their lives. What we do know is the number one is relationship issues, whether whether it's spouse or partner, children, family, or work relationship issues. And so it's you know it's absolutely imperative that we start to talk about the things that bother us, both you know what's currently happening on the job or things that happened you know, as we were growing up and, and past traumas that uh, occur within our lives. And, uh, you know, we, we, we promote uh, people to, to do an internal size up. It's a phrase I coined way back in 2012. And what that means is we need to ask ourselves two questions every day. Why am I acting this way? Why am I feeling this way? And the best thing that we can do is to listen to others because they see us better than we will ever see ourselves. And, and it's important that we get that way because we don't want to get to that cognitive disconnect, is the phrase I use, which means that we base decisions on the emotions we're going through at that moment and reality goes out the window. And so whether it's anger or jealousy, guilt, whatever that emotion is, that impulse to end their lives or make bad decisions, whether drunk driving or something. It's just, we need to do that internal size up prior to that cognitive disconnect. With your experience as a firefighter, do other firefighters who talk to you, do they feel more comfortable? <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it goes all the way back to, I remember we were out in California and uh, doing some workshops for a, a pretty good sized city and I was at the front door, you know, greeting people as they came into the workshop. And and I remember some old salty firefighter said, oh, yeah, what organization are you from? And I said, well, I'm a battalion chief from a fire department outside of Chicago. Oh, you're one of us. And, and you know, it's, it, it is amazing because, I mean, you wouldn't go to a cardiologist for a knee issue, you know, even though right. they're doctors. So we, it, it's been, uh, 
an eye-opener at how people will open up to me because of, you know, the 26 years I've had the job and, and doing what I do now. And, and so it, it means a lot, too. And what, what we're seeing also, though, Michael, is, is that more and more counselors are becoming culturally competent in understanding our world. So I, I would say the two greatest advancements since I started in 2010 have been the development of peer support teams and counselors that are starting to understand. Uh, the National Volunteer Fire Council, we teamed up with them three years ago to create a, nation, a national directory of behavioral health counselors. And so we have now vetted, you know, close to 450, 500 counselors across the U.S. that work with first responders. And so, and yet we still need hundreds and hundreds and right. hundreds of more. Are you seeing the stigma loosen a little bit in the uh, past few years? No, absolutely we have. More and more of our brothers and sisters standing up and saying, hey, if I struggle with depression or addictions or PTS, then chances are uh, you new people, you might experience that in your career. So they're not only being leaders in the their experience of fire ground and fire activities, but they now are taking the uh, attitude of behavioral health is just as important in our world. And, and you see conferences time and time again where there are speakers talking about uh, especially post-traumatic stress. And yet I think at times that limits us because we know that the number one known reason is relationships and followed by depression and then PTS. And I don't see too many people talking about legal or financial or medical or physical or depression or relationships at these conferences. So until we open up and talk about all these issues, will we truly move forward in understanding behavioral health within our culture? So if a few years ago, I was uh, diagnosed with a bipolar two, and I didn't know a whole lot of people with it. So I didn't have anyone to talk to and all that. Is it important to have other firefighters just talk to each other and know they're not alone? And, and that's the basic premise of what peer support teams really are, is that they, they can sit and talk on the bay floor with a, a brother or sister and, and talk about the issues because, you know, you mentioned bipolar, you mentioned uh, depression, whatever is out in America, we have in the fire service. And we need to let people know that it's okay to uh, talk about these to other people and not to keep it in and not to feel like, uh, you know, you're, you're going to get fired or something. And that's the same thing with post-traumatic stress. I don't want my brothers and sisters to be afraid of four little letters. I want you to understand it. I want you that if you go to a counselor, what they're looking for, whether it's depression, bipolar, we want you to have an understanding of what that does for you and, and that it's okay to talk about it. For you, how does it feel that you are having an impact in these firefighters' lives just by talking to them? You know, it's uh, a lot of people ask, you know, how are you doing, Jeff? How, how are you handling it? And I say, well, it, it's tough because, uh, you know, all the suicides and the people that call right. me. And, and there's so many, there's just so many organizations out there doing great work. And yet we, we still are losing people. And, and and I tell them that hey you know what uh, the we'll we'll never we'll always know 
we'll always know the ones that we lose, but we'll never know the ones that we save. Right. And you know, it's that we just have to uh, constantly keep on going after it, keep on talking about it, bring resources that are available to people. And a lot of people say, well, Jeff, what do you do to take care of yourself? Well, with the last name of Dill, I play a lot of pickleball, <laughs> and, and that's my therapy. So, you know, I'm playing 10, 12 hours. I get into tournaments just, just to relax and uh, and separate myself from those stressful times when I, when I come home from work or when people call me asking for help or when I have to validate suicides. You know, we've I've already validated six for 2023 already, and we estimate, oh, wow. like I said, a, a 65% reporting. Uh, we track career, volunteer, wildland, military, fire, as well as EMS and dispatchers. So you can see we, we draw from a, a very big pool of those that are struggling from and the fire service and EMS world and dispatcher, it's a lot different than, you know, what we experienced in the nineties, you know, starting in our career. You know, we, I think we started seeing it with uh, the Oklahoma city bombing. Yeah. And then you started seeing the Columbine and the school shootings. And now, I mean, mass shootings are almost uh, sometimes a daily occurrence. I mean, just look what's happened in California the last couple of days. You know, you have an 11 uh, victim uh, massacre and then just yesterday or so, seven additional. And yeah, it's just, it, it's everywhere. And the, the stress of the job is just increased due to mass casualty incidents. You, you talk about COVID, you talk about riots and politics and things. And it's just, it, it, people are affected by it, uh, whether, you know, in the, in the fire service or in society. And people are angry. And so we see so much more anger. I mean, have you ever seen so many fights on an airplane? I mean, it's just, there's, it's yeah. just incredible what's out there. And, and my brothers, our brothers and sisters are, are responding to these calls and it, it becomes very difficult. What advice would you give the families of firefighters to help out? You know, we, um, we created a workshop called saving those who save others, the family edition. Yeah. And, uh, and it was based on, you know, many years ago that, uh, we started seeing relationships were a, a big issue for for so many families in the first responder world, and, and I and we tell them I said you know there you, you need to understand and learn what our world's about and and to get involved uh, you know to start auxiliary teams within the fire department so that uh, you can connect with other families and you have somewhere to talk. But also, uh, one thing you know, we, we talk about that internal size up, that is something that you can do with a loved one that's a first responder. At the end of the day, you just take a, a pad and pencil and, and each write down what emotions you went through that day, how it played out, and how it affected your family and your children at home. This, this starts to begin a, a bond. Uh, communications. And, and I tell them, start doing this because long after you retire and the phone calls start dropping from the people that, you know, the brothers and sisters you work with, it's nice to have that connection with your loved one to walk through retirement with. And, and we know that 60 to 65% in our world are, are go through a divorce. And so the, the relationship issue is, is imperative in the first responder world. And, and you do that by talking, you know, everyone, you know, everyone uses the word resiliency and we know resiliency and it, it's important, but for us, resiliency really means, Hey, 
talk about the things that bother you and don't bury what, what, you know, what burdens you. And so communications is absolutely imperative in relationships. What motivates you? I think what motivates me is, you know, like just this past weekend, I was teaching in the Midwest and a captain came up to me and said, do you remember me? And I said, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't. And he said, well, I was in a tight spot, you know, emotionally. And my chief contacted you and you found a counselor for me. And I went to that counselor and it changed my life. And it's, and he gives me a big hug and, and it's those things. Or I was at a place two weeks ago and, and I could just tell there was a a firefighter struggling through our workshop. And I have that, you know, many people have mechanical aptitude, math aptitude. My, mine is the ability to read people. And so I just could tell this firefighter was struggling and we were fortunate to have uh, someone in the workshop who was very good in that area of, uh, you know, with counselors and chaplains. And so during the break, I asked this person to speak to this firefighter. And later that afternoon, uh, he was uh, in inpatient. I think maybe it was the next day. The next day he was in inpatient uh, for his help. And so it's those things because he said during the break, he told this, you know, this resource that, yes, I need help. And just him sitting through that workshop, he probably thought, you know what, I, I do need some help and I'm going to ask for it. So those type of things uh, inspire me. And, and yet, like I said, uh, you know, the the losses that we have, it's very it's very difficult. Uh, you know, and the stories that I've heard and the families that I've met, the hundreds and families, and it, you know, when when you lose someone to a vehicle accident or disease, tragic as that is, there's some understanding. But for these families and friends, uh, they're they're at a loss. They they just don't understand what happened and why their loved one didn't ask for help, or even if they did, and they still ended up. Taking their lives, so it's a it's a it's a fifty fifty. Uh, but you know, my bride, uh, like I said, we've been married forty two years. She's a heck of a lot smarter than me, and so I <laughs> I learned to listen to her. She she can read my my facial expressions, my tone of voice, and things. So uh, I've been blessed in that aspect. Yeah, reading people is like one of the the most important traits. You uh, absolutely it is, and uh, and and it's not to say that you're going to guess what they're struggling with. You just right. know yeah, there, there's, there's something going on and, uh, and, you know, can I listen? You know, you know, would you want to talk to me or can I find someone uh, that will listen to you? And, and that's important. So where do you want to see the organization in the next uh, three to five years? Well, you know, we've, we've been around, we've been blessed by the good Lord to be around here, um, you know, starting with, you know, CSFF in 2009. So we're, we're in our 14th year. Uh, where I'd really like to see is we don't get a lot of funding. And so it becomes very difficult uh, because, you know, our our weekend retreat, our annual weekend retreat runs us anywhere between eighteen to 20000 And when you don't get a lot of funding, in fact, hardly any, <laughs> except for some private donations from people or uh, organizations, it, it becomes very difficult. So we have to charge for workshops. Not a lot, but we have to charge so that we can keep our operations. What I'd love to see is some type of funding, you know, a, 
like the, the major organizations get uh, out there in the fire service so that we can offer free workshops. We can offer free weekend retreats and, and things like that. Uh, you know, it's because behavioral health is not going to go away. Uh, and until they figure out how to have robots do our world, uh, it's suicides aren't going to go away either. Uh, so we, we just want to keep on going, uh, keep on promoting. We've, you know, even though I've traveled well over 800,000 air miles the last 10 years, there's, we have a long ways to go. And, and plus this is a global issue. And, and what makes us different than any other organization out there is that uh, two things. And one is, is the data. And then the other one is, is that 90% of all our workshops come from our brothers and sisters. In 2017, my wife and I hooked up our truck and camper, and we traveled across the U.S. We were gone for over a year, and we put on over 40,000 miles. We were stopping at volunteer departments, dispatch centers, EMS organizations, and just talking to people, handing out our tip cards, and, and let them know that behavioral health is a vital aspect of any department. And we need to start training in our academies. We need to start training our officers. But one aspect that I see 2023, uh, we are about to come out with our white paper and our white paper will, it's my first one. It's, uh, and I don't write it. I have a good friend, Liz Fletcher. Uh, she's a professor out of Houston, uh, because if you ever read a white paper, it's uh, pretty professionally written. And uh, I, I speak from the heart and I, I write from the heart, so I can't write a white paper. So we're working on that together along with Chaplain Mark out of uh, Rush Memorial, who runs the Moral Injury Unit at Rush Memorial. And so we are working on this white paper and it should be out uh, fairly soon. And it was all on the premise that I believe that moral injury plays a larger role, if not larger role, than PTS. Right. And so, uh, so look for that to come out. 